Good evening uh, to you all and welcome to the LSE. I am Sandra Jovchelovich and it is my pleasure this evening to welcome into, and to introduce Professor Gerd Kikerinzer, who will deliver tonight the second lecture in the Space for Thought public lecture series. Before I introduce Professor Kikerinzer, let me just say a few words about the series. Space for Thought is a program of public lectures celebrating the completion of our new academic building, a very important milestone uh, in the development of the school. The lectures are generously supported by the LSE Annual Fund and will bring together leading scholars from the various fields uh, thought and researched at LSE. We're very much delighted to have a psychologist contributing to the series and drawing attention to the potential and the necessity of integrating psychology in the larger intellectual program of the social sciences. And let me take this opportunity to let you know of two uh, other very exciting lectures uh, taking place later this week in, uh, as part of the series. Women's Status, uh, Men's States by Professor, delivered by Professor Catherine McKinnon on Wednesday, the 22nd, and later this week, Internet Beyond Myths, the record of scholarly research delivered by Professor Manuel Castells. All the lectures will be taking place here at half past six. Now, let me say a few words about our speaker tonight, although uh, he does not need introductions. Gerd Gigerenzer is uh, director of the Center for Adaptive Behavior and Cognition at the Max Planck Institute for Human Development in Berlin, uh, which he joined after spending many years as professor of psychology at the University of Chicago. Professor Gigerenzer is widely known and respected for his work on rationality, decision-making, risk, and uncertainty. And his lecture tonight, tonight also marks the launch of the paperback edition of his book, Gut Feelings, Shortcuts to Better Decision-Making. The book was shortlisted for the Royal uh, Society Science Book Prize and was elected Business Book of the Year in Switzerland, won the Science Book of the Year in Germany and is now translated in 17 languages. Good, good feelings opens and widens our understanding of the nature of human reason and thinking, and its approach to reasoning will appeal to many social and cultural psychologists here tonight and to other social scientists interested in this multiple and fascinating field of interfaces uh, between the psychological, social, the cultural, the political and the economic. As with many of his previous books, it is an impressive combination of his scholarship, gifted communicative skills, and a great sense of humor. So I surely recommend it to you. Copies will be available outside the theater, and uh, Professor Gigerinzer has kindly agreed to sign books after the lecture. The lecture tonight will explore the central themes that he presents in the book and will no doubt open new spaces for thought. We are delighted and honored that he is contributing to the series and delivering tonight lecture, tonight's lecture on gut feelings, shortcuts to better decision making. Please join me in giving him a very warm LSE welcome. We think of intelligence as a deliberate conscious activity that follows the laws of logic. Yet much of our mental life is unconscious based on processes alien to logic, gut feelings, intuitions. We have intuitions about sports, friends, the right toothpaste to buy, and we fall in love and we sense that the Dow is going up again. <laughs> I will ask today, where do they come from? How do we know? If you open a book on decision-making, judgment, reasoning, you most likely get a different message. Uh, for decades, these books, including 
consulting firms have taught us, look before you leap, analyze before you act, pay attention, be reflective, deliberate, list all the pros and cons, huh? and weigh them huh? at the best with a fancy statistical software package. But this is not how actual humans make decisions, at least most of the time, and not even those who write these books, as the following story illustrates. A professor from Columbia University had an offer from a rival university, and he couldn't make up his mind. Should he leave or stay or go or maybe stay? A colleague took him aside and said, what is your problem? Just maximize your subjective expected utility. That's what you tell your students all the time. Exasperated, the professor replied, come on, this is serious. <laughs> what I want to do today with you is to introduce you into our research about huh, uh, intuitive decision making. I will uh, define what intuition is. I will argue that one can understand the processes underlying intuitive judgments. I will argue that these processes can often be modeled as what I call fast and frugal heuristics as opposed uh, to a kind of pros and cons of weighting of everything by the unconscious. And I will also give you a glimpse in the kind of research we are doing. Okay. And don't be distracted by that. It's a new theater. And I will invite you to help us to find solutions to the many, many open problems we encounter here. If it were the case that I will uh, say something that conflicts with what you have been taught, that's intentional. So let me start with an illustration of gut feelings. Dan Horan is a police officer. He works at the LA uh, International Airport. His task is to detect drug couriers. What is a drug courier? Drug courier is someone who flies in from another American city with a suitcase full of money and flies back with the suitcase full with drugs to be distributed on the streets. Uh, Dan Horan faces an almost impossible problem. So how to pick the one or two drug couriers out of the hundreds and thousands of people who are passing through the LA airport. Just think a moment how you would do this. Look around, there may be a drug courier around. How do you know it? Um, one evening, a plane came in from New York and about 200 people descended. Among them, a woman who had a rolling suitcase behind her in the color that almost everyone chooses today, black. And she just looked like any woman for most of us. But when her eyes met those of Dan Huran, both knew what the business of the other one is. <laughs> and it took about a few minutes, then she was arrested, and $200,000 were found in her suitcase, and she confessed. I asked Dan Horan how he knew that it's this woman and not any one of those others. He said, I don't know. I can't tell. I just see it. The only thing he could tell is that he's looking for someone who is looking for him. So here uh, we have a case of what's called gut feelings. He knows uh, that, or he has a good guess that it's this person, but he doesn't know why. But it still keeps him acting on that. Intuition, or gut feelings, I use this synonymous for this talk, uh, is not always respected. And for instance, the American legal system is not happy with 
say, Dan Horan's gut feelings. So if a case comes to court when a police officer uh, stops a car, or in this case a person, uh, and the uh, officer is asked, why did you stop that person? And the policeman, or Dan Horan, would honestly say, I had a gut feeling. That wouldn't count. And there have been cases where the case was dismissed. It was not the proper procedure. The idea is that a policeman uh, must be able to give the reasons why he stopped that person. But much expertise is not in language. It's somewhere else. And the intelligence is unconscious. That means, uh, despite the obvious problem, the uh, American system is out there. And when I talk to judges, they mistrust police officers. But uh, most expertise is uh, in the unconscious. For instance, if you would ask a soccer player how he did this great goal, huh? and you probably hear, mm -mm. <laughs> and then would discount that goal because he cannot give reasons. See, and chicken sexers and composers and many experts, uh, they cannot tell uh, how they do what they do very well. So let me start with the def definition of um, intuition. And it's a judgment that has three properties. First, it's quick in consciousness. Second, the underlying process is not aware to the person. And third, it nevertheless uh, guides the action of many of us. The, it's not only the legal system that has problem with gut feelings. Uh, another conflict comes up because of the association of intuition with women. Men, we are rational. And they, they are intuitive. What I show you here is a quote from Stanley Hall. Stanley Hall was the first president of the American uh, Psychological Association and also the founder. And in 1904, he said the following. She works by intuition and feeling. So she is the woman. If she abandons her natural naivety and takes up the burden of guiding and accounting for her life by consciousness, she is likely to lose more than she gains. According to the old soul that she who deliberates is lost. Today, this is no longer politically correct. <laughs> but, uh, there are still some who think in these ways. And if you do a survey, which we have done in Germany, you just get the same prejudices again. And uh, <clears throat> the, today, the enemy of intuition is no longer the association with women, as opposed to us. But uh, if you t open a textbook in, uh, in psychology since the 1970s, you will probably get the message that all our intuitions, men or women, are faulty. And uh, you find an entire list of fallacies that our intuition violates, from the base rate fallacy to the conjunction fallacy to overconfidence and so on. And an almost entire field, behavioral economics, is defined by these fallacies. Don't fall in this, uh, into this fallacy. Uh, what I will go on do today is to argue, sorry, that was the wrong direction. Uh, here is what an intuition is not. And I take, uh, just for the audience, uh, a quote by Benjamin Franklin, who explains how to make a decision, a difficult decision, and this is the pros and cons. Huh? Uh, you find this idea in various ways in the social sciences, from multiple regression, weighing and adding all reasons, to the homo economicus, so uh, maximizing your expected utility, to almost every model of rationality means weigh and add 
everything, and then you see where the balance is. Note that he is ending here with the sentence, this is a letter to his nephew who is in troubles, and uh, he tells him, I, if you don't learn this method, I apprehend you will never be married. <laughs> now, few people, I guess, make decisions about whom to marry this way, at least in our culture. Is there anyone here? <laughs> nobody, or nobody dares. <clears throat> uh, I work lots with economists uh, together, and for fun, I asked uh, them, and most are men, uh, how they uh, decided about whom to marry, marry, assuming that they decided themselves. And whether they used the Benjamin Franklin's method or a modern equivalent, uh, not a single one admitted to it or said he would have done this, with one exception. I have to admit that there was one who said that he exactly went this way. So he listed all the options he had, and then for each option, the possible consequences. So will she, will she still be nice to me after being married? Will she let me, uh, in this case, work in peace hmm, and take care of the children? So, and then he estimated the probabilities that it would <laughs> come up this way, and he put utilities to it. And then he did a calculation, and he proposed to the women with the highest utility. <laughs> she accepted. Uh, he didn't tell her how he did it. <laughs> I met him again recently, now they're divorced. <laughs> but that's nothing unusual today. Uh, <clears throat> so, this is not intuitive decision making here. Hmm? So, what is the underlying process? So, the the process underlying an intuition that the person per definition doesn't know. And here are some of the candidates. One is, it's God's voice, mysterious, we can never explain it. So that's not my position. The second one is, it's biases. That's the type of research in the heuristics and biases program where basically it's pointed out that our intuitions typically fail. That's also not my position. The third one is Benjamin Franklin now put into the unconscious. And we do have now considerable researchers in psychology who think that intuition works since it has been found often working good. It must be the expected utility calculus or something similar, weighing and adding of all information. That's also not my position. I want to make you interested in the fourth alternative. Uh, the mechanisms of intuition are often fast and frugal heuristics. What is a heuristic? A heuristic is a strategy that ignores information. And as we will see, that is nothing, and not something that uh, makes the judgment worse. Actually, it often helps to make it better. Uh, what I will now do, I will give you three examples for heuristics and make conceptual points using these examples. So the first one is from sports. Uh, how many of you play baseball? One, two. <laughs> how many play cricket? Oh, that's four. Soccer? Okay, half of you don't do anything. <laughs> so. How does an outfielder, say in baseball or cricket, catch a ball? You may have never thought about this because you do it intuitively, but how do you do it? You are asking the underlying process. Uh, here is one theory. That's uh, in Richard Dawkins' famous book, The Selfish Gene. It basically says that uh, the person, the player, calculates the trajectory of the ball and then runs to the point where it comes down. What else could he do? <coughs> Isn't that true? Now, this is a version of a typical explanation figure in psychology and in other fields. A complex problem is solved by a complex algorithm. That's not my possession. I'm curious about how real people do it and whether our evolved brain helps huh, to find solutions that are much simpler. 
So note that uh, Dawkins carefully <coughs> inserts the as if here. So he is aware that probably these calculations, certainly they can't be done consciously. Who of you can calculate a trajectory? Nobody. Okay, then the question is unconsciously, but there is no evidence about that. The alternative is uh, fast and frugal heuristics. And a number of studies have shown that players use several heuristics. And I show you the most simple one of those, who works if the ball is already high up in the air. Here it is. Here's the player. The heuristic has, like most heuristic, several building blocks. This one has three. The first one is um, keep your eye on the ball. <coughs> the second one is start running. And the third one is adjust your running speed so that the angle of gaze remains constant. Now watch this player who does exactly that. He keeps the angle constant. See this? And he ends up there where the ball is coming down. Do you want to see it again? <laughs> so the important point is that this player can ignore all the relevant information that's necessary to calculate a trajectory, like the initial distance where the ball is thrown, the initial angle, initial velocity, the speed of the wind, and so on. And uh, thus, what we call one reason decision making just looks at one thing. This is a heuristic. It ignores information and it uses an evolved capacity of the brain, actually several. An evolved capacity is something that is a product of both nature and nurture, like language, the ability to speak. We need our genes, but we need environment. The evolved capacity, one of those is here to be able to keep your eye on a moving object against a noisy background. Uh, there is no computer program today or robot who can do this as well as a human being, but if you happen to have a three-month-old child at home that you can watch her, that she tries to keep her eye on the mobile huh, and track this. That doesn't mean that she's training to become a baseball player. It's much more useful for this. So that's the one thing to see. This heuristic is not just useful for uh, catching balls. We find uh, it in animals who do the same thing when they are out for catching prey or a mate. They just keep the, the angle constant. Yeah? We find this uh, when you are a sailor then you know how to avoid a collision. That's the opposite goal than the outfielder has, but it's the same heuristic. And we find this in, also in social inferences. So this was the first example. Uh, the key point is a heuristic ignores information. It finds different solutions than just the mathematical formula tells you using our evolved brain and uh, abilities like tracking or just running in this case. And here is a way to understand how uh, these problems are, no, are now solved. For instance, uh, having a good model of a heuristic allows us to make different predictions about behavior than an as-if model. The ASIF model calculated trajectory would predict that the player runs there and waits until the ball is coming down. The heuristic model predicts different behavior, namely that the player will catch the ball while running because he or she has always to adjust the uh, running speed so to keep the angle constant. And there are several other predictions that flow out that do not flow out from the ASIF model. Here's my second example. Intuitions about investments. Assume you have the following problem. You do have too much money and you need to invest it. And there is a number, call it N different options, like funds. And you want to diversify, so not put everything in one basket, but how? 
Harry Markowitz has uh, gotten his Nobel Prize in 1990 for finding the solution to this problem. And it's called the mean variance model. Um, basically, the intuition is to maximize the mean, the gain, and to minimize the variance, the risk. When Harry Markowitz made his own retirement investments, then he used his Nobel Prize winning optimization method, we might think. He did not. <laughs> he used a very simple heuristics that many people use intuitively, namely, invest equally. So if you have two options, 50-50, and so on. This is called 1 over n, because n is the number of options. Allocate your money equally to each of n funds. Now you might think that something happened to his brain in this time, but um, the question that I am interested in is how good is? It's an empirical one, not a priori. Uh, how good is 1 over n compared to optimization? That needs to be tested, not believed. And here is a, a, a recent study that has been done on the London Business School, and they've done the following. Uh, <clears throat> Markowitz optimization model plus some 14 more modern optimization models, Bayesian, non-Bayesian, doesn't matter what the details are, compared to this simple heuristic. And on seven investment problems, and what I've done is the following. The optimization models need to estimate the parameters. And I've given them 10 years of data, which is as much as, actually more, as the most investment firms use to calculate in order how to invest your money. And then they predicted the next months only, which is optimal for the optimization models. And then they moved the whole window for a month and predicted the next one and so on until they ran out of data. What was the result? Uh, according to various um, financial criteria, none of the optimization model could outperform, that means make more money, than the simple heuristic. So how can it be that a very simple heuristic can make more money than 14 optimization models. And the, the interesting question is, I need to ask your patience because for some reason I need to push three times now in order to get it done once. And here is the interesting question. So my claim is not that a heuristic is always better than optimization, nor the opposite, which is usually believed. My claim is we need to study empirically how well, in what world, uh, uh, relying on a simple heuristic is better, according to some criterion, than a given optimization model and vice versa. And here are three properties of the world that favor the heuristic. And the first one is, and we call this the study of the ecological rationality of here 1 over n. Why ecological? Because the rationality is in the world as much as in the mind here, yeah, in this intuition. So if the predictive uncertainty is large, then, in general, go for the simple heuristic, ignore information. And it's large in the stock market and funds. If the sample size, sorry, if the number of n, which is not the sample size, but the number of options, is large, that speaks in favor of the heuristic, because the optimization model has to estimate many, many parameters, and you can see intuitively that this leads to more error. And if the learning sample is small, that also speaks for the heuristic. Put it otherwise, if you have a very large uh, learning sample, if the n is small, and uh, you are in a world where almost is something, uh, what you want to know is fairly certain, then go with optimization. If you're omniscient, you don't need heuristics. If you're God, you don't need heuristics. If you're Laplacian Demos, you don't need heuristics. So, from this type of analysis, which is just quantitatively, one can estimate how big the learning sample would need to be in order that the optimization method, so Markowitz Nobel Prize winning technique, 
would outperform this simple intuitive heuristic. If n is 50, then the window that's been needed is how many years of stock data so that optimization pays. Do you want to make an intuitive guess? So 10 years is not enough. It's too small. The answer is about 500 years. So in the year 2500, uh, Markowitz would, could have switched to the optimization model, assuming that the stock market is still existent. <laughs> Under the history. Good. Uh, 1 over n. For those of you who can read German, this is a, a letter prospect that I got recently from my internet bank. Uh, everyone got this letter, and it says, uh, noble, use a Nobel Prize winning strategy to make money. <laughs> and it goes on, yeah. Have you ever heard of Harry Markowitz? He got his Nobel Prize, you know already, yeah. And we are going now to use his strategy. And uh, so, and this is uh, as opposed to what uh, usual investors do who somehow arbitrarily also use these investments. So here you see here how banks work. This bank either doesn't know the results, doesn't understand that less can be more, if they use this at all, or just use this as a strategy to be announced. 1 over n, just like the gaze heuristic, is not an investment strategy. It's been used for many purposes. Heuristics are middle-ranging thing. You can't use them for everything. This is why there's an entire adaptive toolbox of them. Eh? Some of the problems are well known to those of you who have more than one child. How to, in, how to divide eh? your love, your time, your resources among these children. And many parents try to do 1 over n, divide equally. It's hard often. Eh? And uh, uh, this is also a typical result about the ultimatum game. And uh, we'll go now to a third example, and the last example. It's about intuitions about customers. So assume you have a large firm, and you send around catalogs and you don't want to know which customers are still active and which are inactive. How do you do this? The, uh, there are basically two ways to go. Many managers go by their intuition and use a very simple heuristic. In this study that I will briefly report here, there were three businesses and in two of them, the manager used the same heuristic, which is if a customer hasn't bought anything for nine months, inactive otherwise active. In the third one, same heuristic, it was just not nine months, because it was a CD business where turnover is quicker. So note that this heuristic ignores huh, how much this guy bought, the customer bought, how the spacing of these and other variables, which are taken care by a number of models that are known, uh, for instance, Pareto, uh, negative binomial distribution models. doesn't matter if you never heard of this. It's just another version of Benjamin Franklin's idea. Hmm? And here I show you, when you try to test how good this predicts actually customers, you find that in the airline business, this simple heuristic, which is called Hiatus heuristic, actually leads to better predictions than this um, statistical model which has all the information as this one and more. The same holds for the apparel business, for the CD business, it's the same thing. Here's just an illustration that in businesses, it's an important problem. What information should I take? And too much information can actually hurt. So now we can step back and think about four misconceptions about intuition and the underlying processes. The first one is heuristics produce second best results. Optimization is always better. You find this implicit or explicit in many textbooks in the social sciences. 
not true, as for instance the uh, Markowitz example illustrates. The true question is, in what world is a given heuristic better than optimization or vice versa? So we need to find a language for the structures of worlds, and I've given you three examples for structures. Yeah? The sample size you have, yeah? the number of options, and the predictability of what you're going for. Hmm? But this is, uh, we do not know very much about the structure of world because psychologists at least uh, commit what social psychologists call the internal attribution or the systematic attribution error, error that we try to explain things, our behavior with, by traits of people rather than by an interaction between what's in cognition and the environment. Herbert Simon, whose work we uh, follow up, uh, has used a very nice uh, analogy to explain the way to look at behavior. He used the metaphor of a pair of scissors. So one blade, cognition, the other one is the environment. In order to understand how a scissors cut, you will not get it if you just look at one blade. And psychologists usually err on the one blade and sociologists on the other one. Uh, the second misconception is that intuition relies on heuristics only because of cognitive limitations. That has been spread uh, by a very prominent program called the uh, Heuristics and Biases program, where the idea is the reason why people use heuristics is because we have these memory limitations and other things. You've now seen that there may be a quite different answer to this. The reason why people use heuristics is often because it's better. And our cognitive limitation may actually enable us not to look at everything and get lost in detail or statistically in overfitting. The third misconception is that people use heuristics only in routine decisions of little importance. You just have seen two, uh, three counterexamples. The first one is more information, more time, and more computation is always better. Also an assumption that you find in many textbooks and often only implicitly because it seems to be so evident. Not true. I have not talked about time, but if you have ever uh, studied um, uh, ball players, then you see that exactly. So in uh, one of the studies con conducted at our Max Planck Institute, uh, there were handball players, and they had either give, they had a situation where a top game was on a screen, and they were asked, what would you do when it freezes? Huh? Please say immediately what would you do if you would be the player. So it froze, and they said, oh, then uh, pass left, or loop at the goal. Hmm? And then they were given, these were expert players, they were given another 45 seconds time in order to study the screen, which was still frozen in detail. And one, for instance, oh, there is a player to write one. That would be a good option, too. And after 45 seconds, they were asked, now, since you have time and could think about this, what do you think is the best option? And about half of them, they changed their mind. Which option was actually the better one? The first one, the quick, intuitive one, or the one after deliberation and studying? On average, it was the first one. And you could see why, because the options, the quality of the options, the first thing that came into mind was the highest on average, the second was lower, the lower was lower, and so on. And then you can see that it's often useful uh, if you keep the time for a decision very short, but only if you have experts. If you have novices, keep, give them any time they want, they need it. Huh? So, if you want to use this as a, a, a model for uh, academic meetings, if you have experts meeting, then keep the time short. Otherwise, let them all the time. Okay. Here is another step back, the research program that we are addressing. The first question is, what are the mechanisms of intuition? And the guess is 
It's uh, the heuristics in the adaptive toolbox, and this is the study of the adaptive toolbox. What are these heuristics? They're building blocks and the evolved capacities they exploit. The second question, this is a descriptive question, and here we have a prescriptive question. Uh, when are intuitions successful? So it's the study of the ecological rationality of the heuristics. Note that this is now a normative program where we can make statements in what situation it's better to rely on less information. And the third one is engineering. How to use this knowledge to design intuitive decision systems. And here we work, for instance, with doctors to help them to make decisions that they're easy to take. And what are, that are more successful? What I'm doing now is uh, go very briefly through the more scientific part of this. And uh, that will be brief, and uh, you will have time to ask questions afterward, and if not, there's lots to read. So what are the mechanisms of intuition? And here are some of them we are studying. That's not all of them. So you have the gaze heuristic, 1 over n. Uh, one reason decision-making, you saw this in this hiatus heuristic, just go with the length of the interval. And I will talk here about the second one. That's all I will do today. And the other heuristics I will not talk about. Uh, the second question is, when are intuitions successful? And I will illustrate this on this one reason decision-making. There is good evidence in the literature on so-called non-compensatory strategies. And non-compensatory strategies, for instance, a lexicographic strategy, it, which doesn't make any trade-offs. You go with the, your most important reason is, for instance, the time that has been elapsed since the last bot. You ignore all the rest. And uh, we have had since long in psychology evidence for that, but the interpretation was, the evaluation was, it's something yeah, bad. And here, lexicographic heuristics, which is the major, one of the major uh, group of these non-compensatory heuristics, is, uh, this is a quote in a famous decision book, yeah, more widely accepted in practice than it deserves to be. Uh -huh. And uh, really, no, naively simple, and uh, would really pass a test of reasonableness. This is Keeney and Reifer, two eminent researchers in decision making. But they assume implicitly um, that more is always better. And lexicographic just looks at one reason, although it may be different when you go down. Now, they didn't report the test of reasonableness, but we have. And I'll show you some uh, striking results <coughs> using two heuristics. This is called take the best. It's a le the lexicographic heuristic. You have a search rule. It has three components, a stopping rule, a decision rule. So you look up the cues in a certain order. You stop the moment the first cue allows you to make a decision. And then you go with this one. Very simple. Tallying is something like the opposite, but also a simple heuristic. It's, uh, if you think of a multiple regression, it's the same thing, you just throw away all the, uh, all the uh, weights. Hmm? Both simplify. And a major point to understand is that in many worlds, when you have small sample sizes, when your uh, criteria is particular, when there's noise in the data, it's important to simplify and not to use all information. So I'll focus on these two. And the first thing I'll show you is uh, an average over 20 different studies. These are economic studies, these are demographic studies, psychological and biology, it doesn't matter. It's always, the problem is, which of two, say, uh, Chicago high school will have the higher dropout rate? An immense problem in Chicago. And on, based on a number of cues. And these are 20 studies, just average. The point is the following. Here's the accuracy, and you want to have it high. This is take the best just bets on one reason. Telling on all of them, but throws away weights. That's multiple regression. You know this. And this is an extremely simple heuristic that's too simple, as you see here. It just picks something randomly. And the important distinction is between fitting and prediction. Fitting means you have your data already and fit parameters, say, of a multiple regression on this data. Okay. 
That's what most psychologists do most of the time. And in fitting, it's a mathematical triviality that if you have more free parameters, you win. The error bars are smaller than these uh, squares here. But in prediction, what you see here is a crossover. A crossover means overfitting. So this model not only captures what's useful for prediction, but also what's noise. A prediction here means that you take all these models and you fit the parameters on half of the data set, but then you test them on the other half one. That's prediction. Prediction is like foresight, fitting is hindsight. Yes? So when you hear in radio, as I hear almost every day now, a financial advisor to explain why this bank crisis happened, huh? they always have an explanation. If they would ask them two months ago whether something like this will happen, would have been very different. Huh? So fitting is easy, prediction is hard. And here you see an important result. Uh, even throwing away the weights yeah, does better than multiple regression on average. Huh? Robin Dawes has shown this uh, now, I think, 30 years ago. It's still ignored. Uh, take the best, even that's better. So how can that be, that you get, get with less information, better predictions? Now, uh, the study of ecological rationality tries to answer this. Here's a very simple result that just shows that with one good reason, uh, in a certain world, and the world is here a non-compensatory world, these are cues to make predictions, they are binary, and if the weights of these cues are like one, a half, a quarter, an eighth, and so on, you can easily see that just focusing on the best reason that allows you to make a distinction, will, uh, that there's no linear model that will ever come to a different result. It's as good and more faster. And here's a world in which take the best doesn't work well, but telling, just adding up all this, as good as any linear model. This is a simple illustration. What you see here is one of many experiments we have done is to see whether people intuitively change their strategies depending on which world they are, and they do. This is a, uh, these are many, many trials, and they start here, and if they are in the world to use take the best, it increases, and it goes down here. They've never heard of these strategies. They don't know which in the world. They intuitively go with this. Um, okay, that's too far. What you see here is something that you probably have not seen yet. Um, we, when we showed that one good reason is often better than an entire multiple regression, then the critics first said, oh, we don't believe it. You didn't calculate the right regression. So we calculated everything. And then we made some analytic proofs. And the next step was, but what's multiple regression? It's just a linear thing. Uh, how about neural networks? How about classification regression trees? And other nonlinear models. And we have tried this. And this is a problem that we used as a kind of Drosophila problem. Which of two cities has the higher um, the, uh, population? And here is the, the accuracy. And here's the sample size. So this is where you, the models learn, and it's tested on the complement. And this is one reason decision-making. This is a classification of regression tree. If you've never heard of that, it's a highly powerful uh, decision tree algorithm. It's an exemplar model, often used in psychology as a model of mind. Backpropagation, that's a neural network model. And this is a, one of the uh, another decision tree. What you see here is a stunning result. Over the, all the sample sizes here, uh, one reason decision-making is more accurate, not just more frugal and faster than any of those. So here the accuracy effort story doesn't hold anymore. The accuracy effort story is one, you do a little bit effort, yeah, and then you lose a little bit on accuracy. So, and more uh, effort brings you more accuracy. And it's a very nice way to see that there's more to the use of heuristics than just convenience. You're actually, in certain worlds, you're better off using less information, less computation, and get more accuracy. That this is not the only case uh, shows this one. And there are cases where uh, the uh, one reason decision-making is slightly below. 
and we want to understand when it is, when it's not. And what I'll show you now is an illustration uh, about how to understand the channel phenomena that hmm, too much information hurts. This is the temperature in London, 2000. So there are 365 points. And what we did is we fitted a degree 3 and a degree 12 polynomial. What is a polynomial? Degree 1 is a straight line. Huh? That's not a good, um, good model of weather in, in London. Huh? Degree 2 is a parabola. It never comes back. It's also not a good model. So degree 3 comes at least back. Huh? And uh, you see the, the, red, the red line is the degree 12. It can fit very much better than the degree 2. So which model is better? If you do this for all of those, okay, then you get this one. And what you see here, this is the error. So the down is better. And you, the, the higher the degree of the polynomial, the better the fit. But does this tell us something fit? So if you have a, a polynomial of uh, 364th degree, fit will be perfect. So the task of a human and animal is to predict, not to fit things in the past. How good is prediction? And the question is, so then we used this uh, sample size of 30 hmm, to predict the entire temperature of the year. How does this curve look like? Thanks to this machine, you saw it already. Huh? <laughs> hmm? But just think you wouldn't have seen it. Huh? Is this curve going up here, going down here, or parallel, or what? Does it also go down here? So the more the better? The answer is, it's Here it is. It's U-shaped. Yeah. That means over here, this type of models, they underfit. They take in too little information. But these complex models, they overfit. They take in too much information. And that can be statistically analyzed with the variance bias dilemma, which I'm not going into it. But the key message is just to understand the channel idea that less is sometimes more, and more information and computation is always better, you see that it's typical in, in, uh, is a U-shaped curve that we have. Huh? And that the task is, if you want to model how humans make decisions, not to take the most complex model and fit data, and then make the claim that humans are Bayesians, but to see how the human mind economizes by just taking enough information in and enough computation so that it reaches a good uh, settlement between complexity and accuracy. So, uh, let me finish with that and summarize the lecture. So I defined, I started out with defining uh, gut feelings by three components. Uh, a feeling that is quick in consciousness, whose underlying processes are not in awareness, but it still acts on our behavior. Hmm? Second one, the hypothesis is that in many cases, the underlying process is what I call a fast and frugal heuristic that just gets along with enough information. The third claim was that heuristics can outperform optimization methods. And there are basically two reasons for that. One is they can exploit the evolved mental capacities as the example of the baseball outfielder showed. And second, they exploit environmental structure as the example here, the last one, and also the Harry Markowitz example showed. And finally, more information more computation, more time, does not always lead to better decisions. So the task is of a study of intuition to work out in what world can we rely on our intuitions, and we can only answer this by identifying the underlying 
uh, process and in what world does it pay to sit and think and deliberate? Thank you for your attention. I found uh, your lecture fascinating, and actually when I think back on decisions and outcomes that I made in my own life, uh, a lot of what uh, you said today uh, made um, a lot of sense. About a year ago, I had a gut feeling that um, Barack Obama would, um, would not win uh, the American elections if he ran against uh, John McCain, uh, because, uh, well frankly, because I didn't think that Americans were ready to elect a black president. Uh, now, the polls seem to indicate something slightly different, um, and, and my gut feeling is actually not what I'm concerned about. I'm concerned about the gut feeling of uh, those portions of the American population uh, who uh, are uh, <coughs> reluctant to elect a black man as president. And, and today I read an article that maybe uh, several other people here uh, read in the Guardian newspaper where one person who was interviewed said that she was going to pray uh, to try to understand whether uh, Barack Obama was actually ready to be president. So she's, she's praying, she's trying to identify what her gut feeling is about this. And, um, you know, the issue, the issue of racism, <laughs> well, I'm coming to that, the issue, just setting context here, I, the issue of course is racism is a gut feeling and uh, what happens when uh, your um, gut feelings are, are wrong and would it not be manifestly better for um, certain parts of the American electorate to ignore their gut feelings? Uh, it depends on which one you have. Yeah? <laughs> and the, uh, the, uh, it's certainly true that the gut feelings can go wrong. And the study, what we call ecological rationality, is about when it goes right and when it goes wrong. Uh, a good example from the US about where gut feeling went wrong is what Americans did after September 11. So as we know that many of them uh, <clears throat> reduced flying to 30%. Did they stay home? Did they not stay home? Uh, I've analyzed this and what you can see that the uh, number of Americans who uh, jumped in their car increased so by 5%, so this is exactly the miles driven, and it led to about 1,500 Americans who's, who, who died on the road in the attempt to avoid the risk of flying. Yeah? Here's a gut feeling that misleads you. And what we need to to, uh, to do here is to systematically study these gut feelings better to avoid huh, that we react by, in this case, probably evolutionary grown uh, gut feeling to avoid situations where many people die at one point of time, huh, which was okay if the issue was that a small group could be hit huh, by this event, but it's no longer relevant today. The question about Obama, this is... Um, I guess <clears throat> it's a difficult question because we have little data about that. And we also know that most people have the gut feeling uh, that they want to elect the, that the uh, president, uh, the person is elected who they really want to. But there's a danger, as you pointed out, there's a 7% uh, difference being estimated between what people say they vote for and what they vote for if the candidate is black. So. Uh, if you want to have Obama, so the polls, if they're right, would have to show at least a more than 7% advantage. Hmm? There is a question here. And then back on. Hi, my question is a little simpler than that. Uh, what I want to know is that what, why do people refrain from taking gut decisions? Is it, is it a fear in your own abilities or is, it there, is there a comfort in playing it safe? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, there are several reasons. I've mentioned a few. There are legal problems, but I mentioned another one, uh, which is defensive decision making. So 
uh, if you are in a in an uh, in an enterprise in a in a place in a job where there is no good culture of making errors, huh, then uh, it's often the case that people don't try to make the best decision for their firm or for whomever, but one they can defend best. So. Uh, in my experience, those who have least problems with going with their guts are, um, so John Q. Public, huh? and uh, people who are high up in the, in, the, uh, in the manager hierarchy, those who have most problems are those in the immediate levels. They, have, they think they have to defend things. Huh? Actually, those who have least problems up there in the manager hierarchy are family enterprises. There's more a culture of error, so you can make an error and you can learn from this and don't have to feel you're fired from the family immediately. And we know also from many data that family enterprises perform quite well compared to other ones. So here's something that one can use uh, in uh, learning of how to organize a system to get defensive decision-making out as far as you can. And that holds not only for businesses, also for doctors. So many doctors with whom I work, they have, if they're experienced, have a good intuition what's wrong with you, but they're not willing to go with it because it, everyone can error. Huh? And if you sue me, and I say as a doctor, I had a gut feeling that doesn't sound right for the court. So I do 12 tests with you, and uh, just to be on the safe side. Unnecessary costs, the consequence. One question, okay, and then I'll take one more. <coughs> this one. Yeah. I do believe that, uh, I do believe in what she's saying, and the gut, that getting gut, um, relying on your gut feeling is a good thing. But then, um, on a number of occasions, and especially in, in answering questions, you've um, mentioned the word experience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, with experience comes the intuition. Um, possibly you've, um, say, I work in retail, and after three years, I can make better gut feeling, better decisions relying on my gut feeling. But isn't that unconscious? pros and cons that's playing in the back of your mind. How, how does this work? Okay, so the, um, <clears throat> the question is whether relying on, on experience isn't unconscious pros and cons. Hmm? Yeah, and that's, that's one of the uh, points of view that many of my colleagues try to defend. I gave you a few examples that show that it's not. So the baseball player is not weighing and calculating, huh? going with a simple heuristic. So is Harry Markowitz. And more important, um, unlike what's usually believed that weighing and pros and cons is always better, it's not the case. And I've given you some, some demonstrations. There's more about this. There is more in the mathematics here, which I've not dealt here. But in order to understand how the unconscious works, uh, then one has first to get rid of this illusion that weighing more and more, and more uh, pros and cons really leads to better decision. And one needs to ask when this is the case, not assume it's always. There was one final question here. Uh, hi. Uh, my question was along the lines of what the lady asked, uh, yeah. in terms of the fact that the baseball player's memory tells him if he missed a catch, yeah. right? And uh, the consequences were very bad. I've been a cricket player, so I know. If you miss a catch, what happens? Next time you go to take that catch, your intuition, which is unexplainable, tells you to do a certain thing. But through these years, the intelligence and the memory that you have tells you to do the otherwise, or reminds you of a bad past. How do you sort of weigh that and get over it? And I'm asking from a very self-perspective that if I want to make a certain decision and I remember having a bad consequence, how do I, how do I believe in one thing and not in the other? I mean, uh, you probably can learn from errors. <laughs> and learning helps to select yeah, the right heuristics from what we call the adaptive toolbox. And we have formal models about this. 
for selecting. But it's also important to uh, realize how to use, now in a, a just turn your question around, uh, and to give you the other twist, so how can you make sure that others who rely intuitively, like players, yeah, uh, how you can use these knowledge strategically? Yeah? Here's an example. Assume you play tennis, and your opponent has this immense forehand, yeah, and you're smashed on the wall. Now you know what to do. Um, since the, the experimental results show that I briefly uh, touched today is that the moment you put yeah, attention on what the person is doing, then it may not work anymore as good. So, uh, what do you do with your tennis player if you change sides and he is passing you by, you just turn to him and say, you have such a great forehand today, how do you do it? And you have a good chance that he starts to think about it. Huh? <laughs> okay. Well, I'm afraid we have to stop now. I'm sorry, there are many questions, but the book, for those of you who want to know more, the book is uh, outside being sold, and Gary will be signing copies. So thank you very much for coming, and thank you for coming.